Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Firefighters Podcast, where we seek to develop, inspire, and motivate the world of the emergency services operator through a series of wide-ranging conversations. Now, before we go any further, just hit that rate, follow, or subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening to. It's a key performance indicator for us and helps us reach even more people. Now, here's what we've got for you today. What do you know about FDNY? Now, the New York City Fire Department, officially known as the Fire Department of the City of New York, or FDNY, is a full-service fire department serving all five boroughs. It is, in fact, the largest municipal fire department in both the United States and the Western Hemisphere and has the second largest in the world after the Tokyo Fire Department. But you didn't know that. The FDNY employs over 11,000 uniformed firefighters and nearly 5,000 ununiformed EMS employees as well, as well as around 2,000 backroom staff. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Mickey Farrell, who is a third-generation firefighter with 26 years serving in FDNY. He's also a nationally certified Level 2 instructor at the FDNY Fire Academy, and he is the founder of Top Floor Tactics. Now, we're going to link this in the episode notes, but topfloortactics.com and his associated Instagram page and YouTube channel and his now-launched podcast is all about falling in love with the process. And we talk about so much stuff today. It's a really good education awareness piece for a lot of UK firefighters around American firefighting, around tactics, around the crew setup, engines versus trucks. We talk about the senior firefighter. We talk about the next generation of firefighters. We talk about handing that knowledge on. We talk about mentoring. Mickey's got so many great angles that he comes at these things from. His ability to articulate it is clear, tremendous passion. And for me, as corny as it sounds, just the goddamn accent as well. That delivery, the way that he talks about it, the passion, the knowledge, the third generation. Yeah, this guy's got so much to teach and his enthusiasm with it is just incredible. We're going to go through the basics of search. We're going to talk about the firefighters playground. We're going to talk about grit, mentality. We're going to talk about some of the values, the principles. We're going to talk about being grateful for the job. So again, be sure to check the notes for all the good links. You'll be able to find topfloortactics.com. Make his Instagram page, which again is Top Floor Tactics. And again, from there, you'll be able to head into Mickey's recent launch of his podcast, A View from the Top Floor with Mickey Farrell. I hope you take a lot from today's episode. I really, really, really enjoyed this one. I think it might be one of your favorites. I think you're going to want to go back through it so many times. Some of the debriefs and stuff that we cover, we often cover some American debriefs, some debriefs from FDNY because they're really good at it. They've done some great debriefs and unfortunately the reasons sometimes they've had such great debriefs and that they get so good at them is they have had a number of line of duty deaths so some of the terminology that we've used in previous episodes can get unpicked here and you can understand the concepts the logic behind how they do what they do and how they set up the fireground and how they approach things this whole continued experience with the podcast is awesome surreal humbling and the continued growth of it is down to you guys and girls and your incredible sport and the incredible content from all of our amazing guests if you want to see it continue if you are enjoying it i mean you must be enjoying it because you are here still so please consider going over and supporting us on our patreon page we have got debriefs galore being sent into us things we want to share and an incredible list of guests to bring to you so if you head over to our patreon page you can access every single episode ever created by the podcast as you can only access 200 of them on public platforms all of it is in the library to head over there you get access to all of the episodes all of the documents all of the debriefs and it'll make us very happy and it will support us for just three pounds a month so with no other news for today and without further ado please welcome my guest mickey farrell from top floor tactics 
Falling in love with the process. What does that mean to you? Falling in love with the process. Now, this is something I think in the fire service, it's something to, it's, it's hard to harness young firefighters. We're in the sense when they come into the fire academy, we're so quick to look to the field. And I understand that. We want to get out. We mm-hmm. want to start going to fires and start learning. However, when we get to the field, we're so quick to look across the floor. So where I come from in New York City, most firefighters start in the engine company. And then they gravitate to the truck company, which is called crossing the floor. Um, some guys try to do that very quickly. And I understand that because there's a sense of not a, a bigger job, but a different job in the truck versus the engine. Now, the engine, uh, they get beat up. They run around. But water on the fire saves more lives than anything else. And I think that we have to make a series of mistakes in the engine before we start looking at the truck. And that's something that gets overlooked. Um, so falling in love with the process means just nourishing every moment, making as many mistakes as you can. Because now when you get to the truck, we naturally start thinking about what's next. Promotion, rescue, squad, mm-hmm. special operations. These are all the things that are that are going through our mind in our career path that I'm always supportive of pushing someone forward in their career. But we have to just be able to slow down and simply fall in love with the process of becoming a great firefighter. And that comes from making a series of mistakes collectively and then moving forward throughout your career. Zoom in on that, that logical step for me because I think um, I was listening recently to I think Ordinary Heroes. Is That's the recent book from the 9-11 memoirs. Um, gentleman, first captain uh, in attendance. The gentleman's name is going to escape me. But um, he was saying that it's like four or five months still training in the academy, is it? Yeah, I think so. It's... It fluctuates depending on the class that's in uh, from 23 weeks to roughly 18 weeks, and it fluctuates within there. And then they come out and you say, is it a standard that all firefighters will start on the engine? Is that the preferred? Is that the mandatory? And what's the what's the thought process behind it? So in the past, there was one or two classes that were that was a mandatory um progression however there's just simply more engines than trucks in new york city and that's just kind of how it rolls um usually if you have a dad or a chief or you know that type of thing you may end up going to a truck out of out of probate school but i find that <laughs> i find that you're a, a well-balanced and well-rounded firefighter if you start in the engine and i like the fact that they push guys to engines first um so there's no standard rule but that's just a natural progression, mainly because we have more engine companies. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Gore-Tex Professional Fabrics. Now, we all know the working environment of a firefighter is filled with challenges. We face serious risks on the job, such as heat exhaustion, burns, physical and mental stress, and we frequently come into contact with high levels of toxic chemicals. Now, I have been wearing Gore-Tex for nearly two decades on the front line, working in hostile environments, tackling challenging incidents from firefighting to water incidents and in urban search and rescue environments. Gore-Tex have a well-earned reputation for protecting professionals in the fire and emergency services through their family of highly innovative waterproof breathable moisture barriers that exceeds global performance standards and are trusted worldwide gore-tex going further together why is that what fundamentals do you think people pick up there that they really need to embrace and and sort of solidify before they move on to the more technical aspects so to start the engine i mean number one you know the engines have been around longer than truck companies. The engine company, I try to um, parallel it with, it's the infantry 
of the fire service where that line is always progressively moving forward. And there's something behind that. And that comes from company integrity and company integrity ultimately is just teamwork. But when you put a high level of stress behind that, it kind of throws an element that not everyone can truly handle unless they've actually experienced it. Now, Time on the fire ground is everything. Just like in life, we use time for everything. Um, but that time balance transfer of understanding your lower mind versus the higher mind. Lower mind simply logic, reason, and facts. Everything we're learning in the fire academy. You get to the fire ground and you're on the fire floor and floors above the fire. There's a high level of instinctual notion that we have to dial in on. But we can't get there until we can understand that space between. And that's that time. How long it takes to stretch the line off the rig to the top floor of a six-story building, there's a time balance transfer. Unless you've done that, you don't know that internal clock in your mind while you're searching ahead of the line beyond the fire, waiting for that line to get there. So that's why I feel it's so important is just understanding the time transfer balance of what the tasks it takes in the engine company versus the truck company. Because when you're working in the truck, you have to be understanding of and cognizant of how long those tasks are truly taking. I find the um, the incident ground fundamentals, like the setup of the the pillars of control, and like getting uh, you know a safe and effective incident command structure in place in FDNY and other other places in America, is very different to what it is in the UK. So I think it's worth just spending a bit more time there for a lot of our listeners that won't be remotely familiar. So in the UK Fire and Rescue Service, yes, we have. Um, pump rescue ladders versus aerial ladder platforms versus um, water rescue ladders. There are some minor differences between trucks but or between pumps or engines, but not in the fundamental differences that I think you're describing. Because if you could take us into a bit more detail about you saying that the truck is responsible for search and rescue, advancing beyond the fire, not necessarily getting you know, resourcing for water, setting into a hydrant, all that sort of stuff. Just help us understand the separation of tasking when these different assets are turning up on an incident. Yeah, that's a good question. And I think that New York City stands out because of our diligence of positioning. Not every fire department has mm-hmm. our staffing, and I understand that. But that's where it kind of it, it falls into gaining a position on a fire, right? So with the engine company... The only purpose of the engine company on the fire ground, I mean, during emergencies, we have other jobs to do, but on the fire ground mm-hmm. is stretching a line and putting water on the fire. Now, the truck has a series of, of, of tasks. Number one, you know, forcible entry. We have to gain entry to these buildings. So the truck's first job is to more or less force or break down that door. And by doing that, this is all happening while the engine is essentially stretching that line in position. Now, I know a lot of places have pre-connected lines that are attached to the pumper or the engine company. New York City, we have a dead bed that comes off the back. So there's an, estimate, an estimation that we have to calculate per building. So that's a little bit of not time-consuming. We can do it on the fly, but there is a fact of a dialed-in almost observation of how we're going to stretch. Also, in the engine, there's standpipes versus the back stretch. You know, inch and three-quarter versus two-and-a-half. These are things that kind of fall in line with the type of building we're fighting. Um, But that's the sole position of the engine is water on the fire. Now, again, going back to the truck, we're forcing entry. Now, if we're forcing entry, we have to go and find that fire. And this is what gets lost a lot of times. People are searching behind the line, you know, searching behind that advancing engine. 
we have to think of it as, again, the infantry of the fire service is the engine company. And then the truck company is more of the recon, the special forces in the sense they go locate that seat of the fire. Now, in the truck, we carry a two and a half gallon water can. Now, that sole purpose for that man is to hold back a fire within the apartment in the room so the other brothers can now pass that fire and search that back bedroom. Again, in the truck, we're forcing entry. We're locating that fire and searching ahead, above, and beyond the engine company. Now, that's something that not everyone... Do you have any firefighting media story? You know when you're doing that forcible entry, do you have firefighting media when you're doing that? Because one thing that... Uh, you know, was part of our fundamental training in the UK. And it may be because of some of the incidents that we've been to. And also we do a lot of attack box training. We have no grave concerns, but a lot of instructors have concerns about correct door assessment, door entry procedures, you know, so that they don't stumble upon, you know, a, a backdraft or something like that, which I think is over-egged. I think we worry about it too much and it really acts as a barrier to uh, advancement and that really aggressive um, firefighting tactic but just help me understand what firefighting media would the trucks have you know the actual search and rescue truckies have when they are gaining entry to these and how how far beyond the line would you expect them to be going now when you say firefighting media you kind of lose me on that um what do you mean by sorry so are they taking so we would have like a hose reel 19 mil hose reel or we might have uh, a 64 mil lay flat which is like your canvas hose but we would not, if we if we read that there was smoke, uh, unburnt products of combustion, a fire behind a door, we wouldn't force entry that without what we would articulate as a sufficient firefighting media. So we would need water of some form. And we'd probably have as a bare minimum a hose reel where we could deliver, uh, you know, 275 you know plus liters a minute just to be able to do some sort of condition control prior to entering that compartment? So that's a good question. So I think understanding what you're asking is that when are we forcing the door versus not forcing the door to gain entry because if there's a fire and we need water to, yeah. to make that entry. So it's situational. So if we have fire directly impinging on that front entrance of a building, let's use a commercial fire, for example, right? So we have a fire in a store. Mm-hmm. If fire is directly impinging on that door or that rolled down security gate, we're going to start the progress of forcing that door but probably not fully force it to gain the entry until we have a charge line or a media as you say right a charge line ready to go to work with that because fires greeting us at the door sometimes we have engine fires versus truck fires now flip the script we get there smoke showing no direct fire impingement on that on that door we're going to force that door a lot of times close the door behind us and then go and find the fire we have to find that seat of the fire before that engine company commits. And that's that's huge. And that's where we get lost in the sense where you see a lot of engines stretching into buildings but not understanding where the seat of the fire is. And that's where we get in trouble. That's when we start having engine firefighters getting lost, burned, and dying, unfortunately. And it's not too often in the past we've heard about engine firefighters getting killed in the line of duty. It's something we hear more often now. And I think it comes from the lack of, of staffing but also the lack of experience of that understanding that truck really truly has to get to that seat of the fire. And by a lot of times when they find that fire, they're not extinguishing it with the can, but they're just confining it and isolating it to buy some time to search for life and then going and getting that line and then bringing that line to the seat of the fire and then putting the fire out. It's a teamwork in the sense where we have to be working together, but it's two completely different jobs. 
So if I try and translate that into like a UK style, so we'd be talking about a quick reconnaissance search and rescue team that would, for example, gain access through the front door, advance to the first floor, carrying carrying that 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 firefighter media, and they would like anti ventilation. So they'd do an initial attack on the fire, perhaps close the door down if there's no obvious casualties in there, and then they've found that seat of the fire. It's first floor on the right and they'd close it down they'd make an initial attack close it down and talk to me about ventilation at that point because there's a big aggressive approach to ventilation i know i'm kind of going all over the place here but i just want to kind of set a bit of a foundational understanding for what we're probably going to reference to many different times in our conversation so ventilation that's you know we always hear the the term coordinated attack but do we truly understand what we're in coordination with? That's the question. And again, time, like everything, it's a time balance transfer. And, it, and timing that ventilation is very, very hard. And that's something that I think that we don't really talk about in the fire service or identify how truly hard it is to coordinate the attack. Um, so with us in our staffing, we have a guy that will go to the roof. And depending on the building, he's not always cutting that roof. So we have flat roofs. In the private dwellings, commercial areas, mm-hmm. uh, multiple dwellings, that guy is going to either go up and vent that bulkhead if we have a public stairwell, right? So that's that's the key. The roof guy's got to get to the roof and vent that public stairwell because that's where people are going to be trapped. That's where we, as the firefighters, are making entry into that hallway. So everything above that is going to get lights out conditions and very hot, very dangerous. So we have to get that bulkhead. Yeah, yeah. Now, a bulkhead door is simply just mm-hmm. a door in the top of the stairs of a multiple dwelling. When I say multiple dwelling... It could be anything from three to six stories to seven stories. Um, anything, <coughs> excuse me, anything beyond that, we're talking different kind of tactics as far as um, high-rise, fireproof um, type buildings. Mm-hmm. When I talk multiple dwellings, in this sense, I'm talking about a six-story wood wood interior brick outside. You know what I mean? You know, we call them class threes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So why that guy is gaining his position on the roof to get that bulkhead open. Would he work alone? Yes. But you're teaming up with the second do truck company roof man. So we team up together, but we work alone. So within the truck, we're all working alone, but you are teaming up with that second truck that's coming in, if that makes sense. So I think um, the profile of the building, sorry, just to, just to double click on that, is a really interesting one because when we hear things like that, it it would that would probably immediately trigger a UK firefighter because they're like, the guy's going on the fucking roof by himself, but... In New York, a lot of these buildings are des- they're designed for people to walk around on. The residents will probably access that roof on a regular basis by themselves. There is some form of collective protection. There is some sort of parapet or something around the edging of that building. And also, what always frustrates me when people moan about going to the roofs, we know through our attack box training and everything else, the best form of ventilation is creating a natural vertical vent. Because it's going to clear conditions, it's going to allow you to advance easier, it's going to get rid of any heat, unburned products of combustion, it's going to clear the staircase for the smoke. But, yeah, just that, that aspect of going alone, I know it probably makes sounds so weird, I don't know why we're so scared of it, but we, we, don't, we don't like deploying people aloft by themselves. I don't know if it's a lack of trust thing, a lack of competency thing. We talk about it and brag about it being about control and command and control and, and structure, but... Um, but I, I think we're missing a trick there. Because like you say, the, the, mind you, again, our building profiles, unless it is a high-rise or medium-rise building, 
wouldn't we wouldn't typically expect to find a vent that we could access as a firefighter to quickly uh, to quickly provide that we would be forcing forcefully creating a vent i suppose in other news this episode is brought to you in partnership with msa safety today we have them to thank for the improved firefighter safety through connectivity in their brand new connected firefighter system at the center of the connected firefighter platform is the msa m1 scba with telemetry you can view battery life air pressure and estimated time remaining either independently on the m1 itself or from the lunar connected device screen also still with the air status alarm information search status and all of this provided to the incident command for confident decision making during the scene that integrates straight in with the lunar system which is a wireless all-in-one device creating an independent search and rescue network providing edge detection enhanced personal thermal imaging while simplifying post-scene reporting and data retention one of the key parts of the lunar is their fast system the firefighting assisting search technology this combines directional and distance information with thermal imaging to help find separated teammates and decrease response time it actually connects you to the other crews in the vicinity for a unified search during the time of mutual aid by instantly notifying the network of lunar devices when there is a downed crew member allowing for a prompt search and rescue all of this then plugs into the biogrid system for cloud-based connectivity real-time information and data-driven decisions for the incident commander enables you to see the exact location of your firefighters on the scene and it doesn't require you to be sat on the station the msa hub then provides a wireless gateway straight to the cloud enabling wireless on-scene data for local and remote incident command for additional eyes on the scene msa are truly taking massive strides in the future of improved firefighter safety through connectivity msa is dedicated to increasing safety in the fire service through technological advancements various feature enhancements new products partnerships and integrations will provide additional capabilities readily accessible by products software and services in the brand new MSA Connected Firefighter platform. Now back to the show. You know, it, it does come down to the building construction type because now we, in, as far as we as in New York City, we're the only department in the country that we do not cut peak roof private dwellings for ventilation. We'll cut, we'll cut them in the overhaul stages to access fire, but we are not cutting for ventilation. And it, it's... It's a furious battle between departments, especially in the Northeast area region of um, of the states, because New England area is very, very key on cutting roofs. Regardless, they're always putting a guy in the roof and cutting. Um, my big argument is that coordination attack, like I said, what are we truly in coordination with and time factor? So across the board, I hear the argument that Staffing, staffing, staffing. We don't have guys to put here. We don't have guys to put there. New York City beats fires out with hooks, right? A million guys show up. And that's there's some truth to that. <laughs> but we have to understand is that when we get a fire in a peaked roof private dwelling, which is just a roof with a pitch, like most yeah. buildings across the country, across the world, um, we're not putting a guy in that roof to cut and ventilate. We're taking that guy, that roof guy, right. and teaming up with what we have the OV, that outside vent man, who goes opposite the line to take that window. Now they're teaming up, and they're going to the most likely occupied area. And that changes if it's a single-family or double-family home, if it's an open interior stairwell versus a closed interior stairwell, meaning that there's two apartments in one private dwelling or one home, or if it's one full house, then we're going to the upstairs bedrooms. But... I truly feel, and we feel collectively as the FDNY, that we can save more lives 
by getting in and VESing the most occupied areas rather than putting a misplaced or mistimed vent hole into a roof. So that's where we differ from most places, and I can have arguments for hours mm. about this, but uh, it works for us. It doesn't work for everyone. But going back to the staffing argument, everyone complains about staffing. Well, get the guy off the roof and put him in the bedroom and search and save lives. That's just my opinion on it. But that's how we are venting. The, uh, or the, or that's how we're tackling peak roofs versus flat roofs. Now, the flat roof of a private dwelling, we're putting that roof guy and we're cutting that roof to vent that smoke out because it's mushrooming on that on that top floor landing, you know? I don't know if that makes sense or not, but... You know when we're talking about... So we, yeah, no, it makes sense perfectly. So we're talking about a pitch roof version now. Let's go back to that scenario. So we've got... We're not sending... Any, we're not committing the guy to the roof. Um, we're sending the OV for an external vent looking for a horizontal vent. Are they just naturally doing a 360 of that building just to see... Uh, smoke conditions inside a window and then choosing that and they will just create a forcible tactical vent or are they considering things like wind direction because I know you're saying putting it the opposite side of the pipe but if depending on wind direction it's going to drive that fire against the crew potentially if that if that and again it's talking about coordination is it's all about coordination for us it's all led by the incident commander someone would ask to would have to specifically ask permission if they wanted to create a vent on the outside of, of a property that we were going to enter, because again, wind direction and, and my tactical plan might have something else in mind. Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, especially in New York City, you know, I mean, Manhattan's an island. I mean, we're all islands within the fire browse except for the borough of the Bronx, and even there, it's, it's a peninsula of water. So we always have a wind condition, and. ROV or outside vent firefighter is usually one of the senior firefighters that can take all that into account. So under a stressful situation, most times we're going to get that, that tunnel vision in a young firefighter. But having that ability to step away from the moment, taking that yeah, tactical yeah. breath and, and sizing up all the details, wind condition, where the line is, right? Uh, the amount of fire we have. And understanding that once we introduce any bit of flow into that building, it's going to change the dynamic of the fire. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's a calculated... There's a calculated attack when you are venting opposite the line. But once that engine company has that, that water and they're advancing, 90% of the times we're taking that window and we're communicating that with your truck officer, right? So you're supposed to ask for permission. So it would be ladder one OV to ladder one, permission to take the windows. And a lot of times the officer will say, hold off, right? Or if that OV will say ladder one OV to ladder one, I'm going to hold off from the windows. We have a good condi- uh, a good wind condition coming off the water, right? I ten four, and that kind of dials in their move on the inside. But you have to have that constant, that constant back and forth with that truck officer and that OV. Um, something that also has to be extremely across the board understood is that. The engine officer should be the only person that says we have water on the fire. Nobody else. Because now, if someone else gives that transmission, we have water on the fire. And people start taking windows. And in fact, they don't have water on the actual seat of the fire. That can drastically change conditions on the inside of the fire building. So when we're looking at, you know, everyone's seen these videos, Instagram, wherever else, that's the engine company. We're looking at the engine company that, you know, 
the the truck company has already gained access they've already they're looking for the vent whatever else it's the engine company that's that's getting the scba on they are the ones advancing first into the property and they'd be ones expected to carry out the direct firefighting i'm sorry could you you said that the engine company is the first ones to advance or yeah the first they'd be the ones with the ba on breathing apparatus we're they're the ones we're seeing go through the door they're the ones advancing the line and will be carrying out the direct firefighting yeah, so the engine company, again, their sole purpose is to put water on the fire. Uh, with the truck, they, they will be the first ones in ahead of the line. Like I always say um, in the truck company, if you're not searching ahead of the engine company, you're essentially searching for dead people. And now it's kind of a blunt statement, but there's some truth to that. So the first guys you see go into the building, that's going to be the truck company, the inside team like made up of your officer, your can man, and your irons firefighter, mm-hmm. or your forcible entry firefighter. Those are the three guys that enter the building first. Unless fire, again, greets us at the door and it makes those conditions to the point we cannot enter. But they're the first ones going in. They're mm-hmm. firing the fire. They're sending a guy back to the engine office with the nozzle man saying, hey, bro, listen, it's down the hall. We have two rooms on the left. Right? And those are the guys you see now with the line. They go when they make the push. See, that's what fascinates me. And again, we talk about that that role and the specificity of what that person's duties are. Because, you know, in some of our rural stations and stuff like that, you could turn up by yourself, as in not as a team of one, but you'll turn up with a single fire engine with four firefighters on it. And you'll still set up a, a structure. And you might even, you, well, you probably will commit people internally into that structure trying to capture all of those duties under one thing. But your standard PDA, your, your predetermined attendance, will always be a minimum of two trucks, I'm guessing. You, well, you'll have an engine and a truck every single response. There's no point where you send a single vehicle to an incident. We do it with emergencies. So this is where some of the tactics do differ. Yeah. So we have like truck runs, engine runs, more or less. So the engine does our, our EMS, our, our first responder. They also do ERS boxes. We have someone pulls the box in the corner, one of the alarm boxes. They pull that. They say there's a fire. They're still only going to send one engine. Uh, that comes from the days of, of tens of thousands of so false that's why nobody. <laughs> that's why people want to get on the truck because the engine companies up all night going to false alarms. <laughs> exactly right. Between the EMS, which, listen, <laughs> I'm all about for helping people 110% across the board, but the system is broken, and that's what's not being talked about. The runs we used to go on to help people, I was all in on, still all in, but when you're going to nosebleeds and high high blood pressure runs at 3 in the morning, it doesn't make sense. Oh, you're taking an engine company yeah. out of service for nuisance uh, sick calls. We're not doctors. you know. We're there for to bring the, the defib, to get someone O2, to get start CPR. I'm, I'm all in. But you can't take an engine yeah, yeah, out of yeah. service to go deal with a nosebleed. Just It's the system's broken. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. But... Um, we're we're so a long way engine. back from you guys. I mean, we we want to get closer to you. Obviously, like you say, we don't want to be going to to nosebleeds and someone that's got blood in their poo and wants to just talk about their headache or something like that. But we call it you know co-responding. We call it in the UK where we will have the fire and rescue service. We trialed it for a little bit around uh, two years ago. Um, and some people would love to be have that upskilling. I'd love to upskill to a paramedic and have those people on my crew and on, on, on the trucks. But um, there's a big push pass against it in the UK. But our NHS is absolutely on its knees. That's our National Health Service. So they are screaming out for help. Um, how does that work with your guys then versus... Because you, you guys share stations with all your paramedics. Is that across the board? Because I'm trying to get an understanding. Things are very different from state to state. 
Um, what's the setup in, in FDNY? Yeah, so the FDNY, we're actually com- we were very we were completely separate agencies for for many 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 years, and they combined it a little over twenty years ago. Um, there's some good and there's some bad behind it. I don't want to get into that side of it, but we are separate in the sense <laughs> where fine, we yeah. we're very separate. Where they are not in our firehouses, they have their own stations, um, and completely separate jobs. Oh, do they? Yeah, very very separate jobs. We are certified ah. first responders. That's all we are on the engine company. Now the EMTs mm-hmm. and the paramedics, they're in the buses or the ambulances throughout the city, and they're kind of roaming, and they have an area that. It coincides with the battalion that the fire side, they have the EMS battalion. The battalion numbers match, but completely separate jobs. So we'll send an engine company to an EMS run. They'll get there. They'll assess the patient. They'll start CPR. They'll get oxygen going and kind of see what's going on to to help the patient. Followed by the ambulance will show up a short time later and then the paramedics after that. Um, pretty much it's just we get there a lot quicker than they do because they're so busy that they want to start some sort of patient yeah. care. So that's why the engine's going. Uh, but again, we're very, very separate. And the EMTs in, in, you know, in the FDNY, they're tremendous. Uh, I don't know how they do that job, to be honest with you, but mm. they were very, very good, and they're very, very busy. Uh, but we, So we kind of like supplement I'm guessing they get a pay increase for it, do they not? Do they not get a pay enhancement for, for doing the EMS, uh, the EMT qualification as well? Yeah, so EMS side, I, I don't know the numbers, but you start as a basic EMT, you can get promoted, or you, I guess you can become paramedic. Then they have hashtag paramedics, rescued medics. Uh, they're the higher level of training, and that's the highest you get paid. And then they have, I guess, the, the chain of command is lieutenants, captains, and chiefs, the same as the FD. Um, and on the the fire side, the engine gets paid a little bit more per tour because they're doing the EMS runs. Well, thank you for entertaining me with that, that that side of it. Because again, sometimes I'm guilty of, I've done a lot of research into yourself, into top floor tactics and stuff like that, but just to bed and seed the ground uh, for an understanding for people, because sometimes we can delve straight into some stuff. A lot of things we want to discuss, as, we, as I sort of came through in the intro, you're third generation firefighter, you've done 26 years in service and now, and obviously you've been in the FDNY for the last sort of 20 years. I wanted to have a conversation with you specifically today, because there's so many aspects I would say good firemanship, and we shouldn't fucking say that these days in the UK because firefighters, men, women, and all that sort of jazz. But it's like the things that can get missed in people's expediency, as we sort of alluded to at the beginning of our conversation, to get straight into the depths of the job. They want to start advancing, want to start progressing, looking for promotion. There's so many people retiring in the UK fire service now that people are progressing very quickly. And sometimes they're losing some of those fundamentals and also with the greatest of respect a lot of senior firefighters on stations um so wrapped up in their pensions maybe they've lost the love or lost the joy of it sometimes that it's a disconnect in handing some of that down and, and there's a great piece on your website that talks about the responsibilities of a senior firefighter and i wondered if we could just go there for a bit sure absolutely you want to speak about the senior man yeah talk me through the senior man what you what you see is that individual's duties because Without the necessary rank, you know, they always say a child is raised by a village. It's, you know, they don't have to have a specific mentor or something like that. And I think the senior firefighter has so much to offer, but their willingness to is very different from individual to individual sometimes. Yeah, that's a, good, that's a very good point. Yeah, so the senior firefighter, this is something, this is the individual, in my opinion, he runs the house, not just the, like, the rig. He runs behind the scenes. You know, he's the guy that has the say all and everything, more or less. And it's a huge, huge, huge opportunity to have that, because 
you don't see what I'm trying to get at is you don't have to have the guy with the most time in the firehouse be the senior guy per se. It's the guy that steps into that role. Uh, that's that, that's what I'm trying to get across is that you know you have a lot of guys that have a lot of time, but they're not the guys that are really the ones that are like leading the way for the young members. And I think that's what yeah, we're losing really sight into of the job that, who are, who are studying the new yeah yeah and. As the job changes, I mean, it sounds crazy, but with just even just you and I sitting here talking, the job's changing. Social media, it's changing the job. And a lot of these older senior guys, they're not in tune with that. And I understand that, but they have to realize that these guys have a different way of learning. The next generation has a way of learning that was never identified before in the fire service. And I think that's where the senior guys, not so much that guy with 40 years, but maybe that guy with 18 to 22 years, that becomes your senior guy. And the importance of that guy who truly is leading and running that firehouse for the core of it. Um, as an officer, it's very easy where I work because that senior guy and the senior guys that surround him with, um, they make it very, very easy. They do everything for you. All I have to do is simply to get on the rig, go down for the meal, run a drill once in a while, but most times they're already running the drill because the senior guys have the young guys trained to do all that without even asking questions, without even mm. telling them to, the prompting them. It just happens naturally because that comes from a good senior guy. Is that is that something you formally appoint though? Like do you do you promote people into that senior position? How does that naturally happen? Because you could have an entire crew that have got the fuckums, you know, and you do find that in places in the UK sometimes where just because I've been in 30 years and that person's been in five years, I, I, I don't need to be mentoring them. I'm not uh you know, I'm not, I'm not a captain. I'm not a crew manager, watch manager, watch commander, whatever. It's not part of my job to do that. Sometimes you can find that. It's rare. Um, it's probably more common in some places. But like, what do you think it is about that individual that either they are encouraged to step into that senior role, they have the desire to? Um, and what do you do when, when there's a vacuum? What do you do when there is nobody to step into that role? So I think that the men and the women in the firehouse they're the ones that put that guy in the role or that woman in the role that senior person it's not something that's appointed it's not something that's given it's something that it's earned okay. it's earned with the respect by doing the right thing on and off the fire ground so that's where that comes mm -hmm. from and the question is when you don't have that guy who's it become and that's that's where we're having a problem with the next generation coming in and that's why i feel through my yeah. platform on top world tactics, the senior guys become global in the sense where I put the senior guy in the palm of your hand. All you have to do is sit down and read a few posts and you kind of understand that gap or understand where to fit in, not only at the fire, but like where to fit in within the hierarchy of the firehouse. And that's where we're kind of getting lost. Not everyone gets to go to a great firehouse, right? A probing school or in the volunteer world, not everyone gets to go back to their, their hometown yeah. and volunteer and have that core group of guys or girls that are doing the right thing pushing the job forward so that's where i feel that these opportunities of talking to you or social media that fills that gap yes i think that that's funny because like you say back when i joined probably i mean obviously you joined a little probably five or ten years before i did but back then it was reading the books it was getting your head into debriefs and, and you know tactical procedures and training manuals and stuff like that <clears throat> that's not how a lot of people learn these days a lot of people like to get their information through podcasts through videos for, for better or worse it, it sometimes needs to be uh, more engaging in that capacity for them and i think the platform you've set up for it is incredible so <coughs> excuse me let's head into one of those areas that you've got a you've got an article on there about the beginner's guide to search so in around positioning layout of the property 
and, and the differences that you see in, in when it's done well uh, and what you would expect to see. So this kind of goes in line with the positioning of the first two truck. And I think that first two versus second two truck, or if you don't have a truck, you have to understand the truck is just the vehicle, right? But the tactics and positioning remain the same. So you can take an engine to a fire, but have to act as a truck because that's how we put the fires out. That's how we gain position on the fire. So understanding the basics of search, it gets blurred because in the fire academy, and I'm sure we can all relate to this, is that how many times that we call for water, we get the line. Now we're going to go put the fire out. The truck's making the search, looking for people. They're finding their victims, their dummies. They're giving the, you know, I got one here, I got one there, and they're bringing them back out. And it all happens kind of naturally, but we're programming robots, and that's where we're getting lost in the real world. When you go to the field, we have to understand that positioning of search is a lot different. Search mm-hmm. is for life. Yes, that's what we do. We save lives. But that first company and the first truck company they're searching for the fire number one once we find that fire now we search away from that fire to that point of entry where we just came from that's where we're getting blurred so that basic search concept is that on the fire floor we're looking for the fire first directing the line in position because more lives are saved by getting water on the fire quickly and efficiently we all know that so let's do that let's find the fire Let's get that line in the position, and then we'll search away from the fire where most victims are most danger, and then search back to where we started. Now, however, the floor above, very, very different. Our search starts at that threshold. When we're going above the fire, when we're passing that first floor or that fire floor, and we're going above, our search starts at that threshold. So we're searching for life rather than fire. Life is number one on the floor above. And this is an argument I have or a discussion I've had with, with some chiefs of traveling around and giving my lectures and my classes. And they say, well, we don't really put guys on the floor above. And I say, why not? They say, well, it's dangerous. It's a newsflash. This job is dangerous. And that's where people are in most danger is above the fire. We have to get there quickly and efficiently. So our search starts once we make that point of entry going up the stairs and not forgetting to tell the first due engine officer or Nozleman, listen, bro, I'm going above. Make that eye contact because now they know they can't go anywhere because you're going above. You're their last resort. So now you're going up there. You're searching for life number one, but we're focusing above the fire room area first. So we're going to search our way to that fire room area, search very, very aggressively. And I use the term aggressively kind of loosely in the sense where aggressiveness isn't really a thing to me. It's it's a series of mistakes you make to become an aggressive firefighter. Aggressiveness to me is calculation. So calculated areas of search. Floor above, we're getting above that fire room, we're searching that area, and then we're going to be opening up, searching for fire travel, and this is where we start losing buildings is because we're forgetting to get on the floor above, yes, looking for life, but we have to look for fire travel and extension, and we have to do it quickly, and we have to do that often. That's something that's become far more prevalent in some of our search procedures and our awareness is breaches in compartmentation, like you say, smoke and fire spread. We've seen it in a number of high-rise incidents in the UK of late, and it's given us uh, a lot of impetus to review some of our evacuation strategies, the way in which we search tactically above the fire. Um, because like you say, so many of these buildings, certainly for us, stuff built in the 70s and 80s and sometimes earlier, um, a lot of these buildings are in very, very poor state of repair now and causing us, uh, like you say, a much greater need 
to understand how you're looking for fire spread, how you're looking for smoke spread through compartmentation, through um, people that have done retrospective changes to that building. And I imagine FDNY, man, you're the the buildings, how they interweave to each other, the complexity, just the sheer population density in in New York must be must be a real minefield. Like you say, that whole the sizing up for you guys and girls seems seems to me from the outside looking in. Like there's just a lot more there's a lot more things happening there. There's a lot more situational awareness needs to be needs to be brought to the forefront of people's minds. Yeah, I think a lot of that comes from getting out and just knowing your neighborhood, knowing your building. So when you look at New York City, it's very, very overwhelming for you know for the naked eye and not understanding the interworkings of the buildings or just just the people it's in just general. Sensory overload, mate, isn't yeah. it? It's fucking crazy. Yeah, no, I mean I love New York. I do, but it's uh it's a great playground to be a firefighter in, that's for sure. And because there's never a dull moment and there's never a building that's the same. We have a lot of buildings that the guys who wrote these books long before I came have it so dialed in that we can hear an address and know exactly where we have to be in that building. If you know the building, if not, when you pull up, you know exactly where to be and where to fit in. So there's no communication. I'm not telling the chief where I'm going or he's not telling me where I'm going. I'm not telling my officer. He's not telling me we're just going. Everyone just kind of goes where they're supposed to be, but it's so mapped out and so dialed in. And I think about it often where I'm just kind of like driving around and, and you know, you see the skyline or you're at work and you're just taking it all in. You think to myself, like, it's pretty crazy that every single building in this city, a firefighter is assigned a position for that tour and he knows where to be at that building. Doesn't matter what building it is, it's already predetermined. How, where you how have much to time be. is spent on that? Like, help me understand that. How 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 big are the patches for you guys? So we call them patches like you. How, the bit the lot the areas that your stations will cover. How how large are they? How many properties are we talking there? How much time do you spend with your firefighters on? We call it topography, where we'll visit local risks, we'll visit local buildings. Is that just something again you expect people to build through time? Do you guys and girls do risk visits on these buildings for familiarization? Are people expected to do it in their own time? How, how do you develop? Because we we you know we have people transferring stations all over the place. We have a lot of new firefighters coming into services where they might live on the outskirts of the city, which again I know is not different to, to New York because a lot of you guys and girls may not be able to afford to or just live outside the city itself. And some of ours, they, they just won't know the street names, they won't know the buildings, and we spend a lot of time just doing general topography. Well, we try to whenever we get the opportunity, but is is there a formal process you guys are supposed to pick that up? So we do building inspection, and it's supposed to take place three times mm -hmm. a week. As they supposed to, they used to be very regimented about us getting out there and, and, and doing these buildings. I found it very counterproductive because guys would fight it. Guys didn't want to go out when they were told to go out. That said, building inspection is yeah. always happening. We still have to do the paperwork, and that's more on the officer side. But we have days we're supposed to go out and look at buildings, and most companies do. Um, that's where we're actually getting our formal training. But every run we're on, every single run, we're getting in these buildings, we're analyzing them, we're talking about them. What if scenarios, fires here, fires there? Where I work, I'm very fortunate. These guys are extremely squared away in that sense. Where we go to any kind of nuisance run, they're thinking fires. It could be there for a gas leak or, or a water leak. The guys are thinking about fires and they say, what are we doing if the fire's here and how are we going to react and go there? Yeah. And it's always a constant talk of fire. Now, something I think is great, especially for someone who transfers into the area or for myself, I got promoted, I left the Bronx, now I'm in Harlem. I would sit there on my phone and just pull up Google Earth and just cruise the neighborhood. 
you can check out all the buildings, check out their rear yards, check out the roof, check out the offsets, the back steps, yeah. all these things. So that's a great, great way of doing just a drill by yourself, just sitting in the watch or sitting around the firehouse, just pull out the phone, go to Google Earth, and just take a look. Again, technological advance is something that was just never accessible to, to people back then, but uh, a great way to get familiar with your patch. With your... I wanted to ask you about um, tools. I'm, I was looking at some of the... Um, some of the posts on your Instagram page, and again, we'll link all of this for people that haven't visited and haven't seen it. Um, when we're talking about operational tactics on buildings and gaining injury and stuff like that, one thing that I see a lot of, or obviously from my very small window of insight, is differences in tools, differences in firefighters' abilities in America in general to recruit their own stuff. To, to bring their own tools into the job, to adapt something. Is that something people have the ability to do station by station? Because for us, all of our stuff has to go through a very rigorous testing process. We're only allowed to use stuff that's issued to us by the services. But there are so many isms, as we call them in the UK. It's like, you know, you have your own little way of doing it. You have your knack. You have your approach. You have a special tool that you've designed to get into this sort of building through that sort of gate um, talk to me about tool tactics and and you know how how you guys and girls because there's loads of channels out there. There's loads of shops and places where people can buy a lot of a lot of their own firefighting gear in the U.S. Yeah, so at least with the FDNY, we don't we don't go askew from what we're assigned as far as our riding position because every tool complements another tool. So um, going to the roof, one firefighter carries a hook and a halogen, the other one will carry a rope and a saw, and whatever it is. Because those two firefighters' tools go hand in hand. They work together. So we can't differ from that positioning tactic of, of what tool assignment we're going to bring because it truly is a tool assignment that coincides with other firefighters' tools. But that said, though... But within the detail you know, of that, as a Halligan and, and your irons, as an example, could you could you just self-deploy and go and get your own? If the one you we have on the rig is not the one you like you go and buy your own and just that's what you use when you're on tour. Because again, you see a lot of, you know, Halligan companies that you can buy, you know, it's six inches longer, it's three inches shorter. There's a, you know, you, you guys are big on door entry. Yeah. So I don't necessarily see guys buying different tools, but they are modifying the ones that are given to us. And, and, you know, that's okay. No one's saying anything about okay. that. Um, <laughs> we really can't go outside of what the city's giving us because there's a rhyme and reason. And, the, you know, the city does a due diligence of, of, of getting the right tools we need. We have a, mm. an R&D, you know, research and development that works very, very closely with the units in the field to make sure we have the tools we need. Mm. But within that, guys do modify halogens or axes or whatnot to kind of make it neighborhood specific, if that makes sense. So... You, uh, you, on the courses that you guys and girls deliver, uh, one of the aspects of it is uh, something we've already alluded to a little bit: the extinguishment, ventilation, and search. The the what and the when. Um, I just wanted to circle back to that for a second for people that are transitioning from engine company on onto the truck. Um, what are the new skill sets, or I suppose a mindset shift for people when it comes to search? Because again, we're very prescriptive in the UK around given a given a search on a brief there's factors around building condition left and right and direct searches off pat searches all this sort of stuff that's very again prescriptive that comes from the incident commander before anybody makes access into that building so just give me a bit of an understanding of <clears throat> you know base level firefighters getting trained in search procedures what are some of 
the the steps they go through, what are some of the considerations, what are some of the procedural stuff where that perhaps we could get an insight into or learn from in terms of how firefighters go about search. So the transformation from engine to truck, you know, it's something that happens naturally, I feel. But we have to understand that when you're operating in an engine company, it's a learned behavior, right? Um, company integrity, teamwork, and zero room for mistakes. Once you make a mistake in the engine, dominoes begin to fall the wrong way, and we don't get water on the fire. We don't get water on the fire. Firemen die. Just the way it goes. Now, in the truck, it's more of a dance, right? Where the engine's more of a cadence, a march. The truck's more of a dance, a ballroom dance, if you will, where there's some flexibility, there's some creativity, where you can make mistakes, but no one even knows you're making the mistakes because you're operating by yourself. An example is <laughs> you could take a, a mirror thinking it's a window, and then you realize you just broke a mirror instead of a window. It happens yeah. often at fires, but it's something no one talks about. It's a mistake that no one even knows was made. So the difference yeah. between truck and engine is the ability to fluctuate within the moment, right? That ballroom dance. Um, it's more of a flow rather than a march. But orientation, yeah. that's the word you're looking for, is orientation. Because in the engine, again, it's that march, it's that infantry, it's that progressively moving forward, where the orientation factor in the truck, that's what we have to dial in. That's where we have to break free of company integrity and understanding that being on the line is integrity, but now operating off the line. You still have company integrity, but you have to be able to orientate yourself with the situation. And orientation comes from as simple as just knowing where you are, but concentrating on your hips. Every time you enter a room, if you keep your hips aligned with that door, you're going to make it back to that door, no problem at all. Very similar to a large dog on a leash, right? He acts up, you pull the leash back, that dog's ass comes right back to you every single time. If you can relate that... Mm to orientation within the fire floor and floors above the fire, it all kind of makes sense where left hand, right hand is more logically speaking for the fire academy. Higher level of sticking is instinctual notion comes from orientation. Yeah, because for us, irrespective of the level of someone's career, they still have to come back to our version of the fire academy. So they still have to come back to training development for reaccreditations, usually on an annual basis. And we expect to see them deploy the tactics as they were taught way back when. So if they came off, they came off a search, um, especially because we're expecting them to go in with a junior firefighter, we still expect them to demonstrate some of the principles in terms of, you know, sticking to, we always talk about it like um, landmarks as well, or reference points. Now, I have a much wider view on reference points personally, because for me, a reference point is many things. It's a doorway, it's a window, it's the hose reel that I've come in with, it's a staircase, there's there's many mind mapping tools that I have in that property. But for some people, they insist that firefighters hug that wall. They're like, that's your reference, left hand in, right hand out, or something like that. And I, I find that is incredibly prescriptive. At what point do you think, through that firefighter's development, they can start to step away from that very rigid, very prescriptive form of guidance and start to employ some of their own experiential learning. See, I think this is where we're lost in general from the fire academy. Because I taught the fire academy, you know, I still do per diem there. And uh, 
I don't. I still to this day. I mean, not to beat up on any of Fire Academy, but I'm not really sure we're teaching the right procedures. I think it's something that has to be taught from day one because we're confusing kids. They're coming out with yeah. this with this understanding that left hand, right hand search, and we can't leave the wall. But then you go to a real building in the field, clutter condition, colleagues mansion, whatever terminology you want to use, you can't even yeah. get to the wall. So these are basic things that it's kind of yeah. a slap in the face because you learn one way in the academy, right? Then you get out there, you're your first fire and and it's just not realistic. So that's so much what we have all the time because, and that, that can be so deflating, like you say, for the junior firefighter, because they've spent a couple of months, you know, or longer trying to really hone this skill. And you they get out there and you tell them it's useless, not at this useless, sorry, but you tell them look, that's, that's not the most effective way to do the job. And, you know, you could take the wind straight out of that person's sails in terms of the confidence they've based their ability on. Today's podcast is powered by our partner Lifelines and their revolutionary approach to functional hydration. Just like in firefighting, water is essential for body function, but studies show more than 80% of firefighters are dehydrated. A 25-year study findings from the National Institute of Health showed poor hydration to be linked to early aging and chronic disease and even mild dehydration results in significant negative impact outcomes including headaches, exhaustion, rapid pulse, irritability and poor cognitive function. A study conducted by Yale University showed that participants who were just 1% dehydrated had a 12% increase in errors when performing tasks that required cognitive flexibility. In addition, dehydration is shown to worsen mood and attitude, contribute to confusion and poor decision making and negatively affect memory and judgment. In other words, you really don't want your incident commander, firefighter or for that matter any first responder on a critical scene to be even slightly dehydrated. Mild dehydration occurs when a person is just 1.5% dehydrated, a condition that does not even trigger the third response in most people so just imagine how quickly a firefighter or any first responder can and does become dehydrated in their day-to-day duties which is why i address my hydration first thing every day with lifelines go into the notes for this episode and specifically check out lifelines hydro fuel and hydro og by clicking in the notes for the podcast for a clean energy solution designed for those who demand more from their day now back to the show yeah so when i get a probie the first thing i'm doing the first tour Listen, come up to yours. I want to show you something. And I show them the basics of that orientation, of that of that hip motion that I was speaking of. Um, it's so simple. And just to do it and then watch them perform and then get the call back or, or in the text message later that night. Hey, I went to a fire. I did what you said. It really worked. Thank you. It just takes a little bit of, of time to pass that knowledge on. But once a firefighter does it in real life one time, it completely makes sense. And it's, again, from just orientation, putting your hips aware of all times so you leave and you go into a room keeping your hips in line with that door and then searching left or right gravitational not attaching yourself to that wall that's how you perform that because if you get a grab or a victim all you have to do is back straight up in line with those hips and you get back to where you started from now if you go in left hand you get all the way back to that back corner wall and you have a victim or worst case scenario it's time to go we lost water fires lighting up around us you don't have time to turn around and backtrack your way. You have to know where you are within the moment just to get back to where you started. And it has to happen very quickly. 100%. 100%. I was looking at, just to change gears for a second, one of the posts that you put out a little while ago, because it's kind of what we're starting to speak about here around these these principles and these characteristics. Um, and something you shared a little while back was around the principles and the qualities that you feel fire officers look for in new firefighters. There was, there was grit, determination, mental toughness, um, compassion, honesty, and there was a whole whole bunch more in there. Now, 
We're going through something in the UK, and I don't think it's too dissimilar from what you have in the US sometimes, where there's this aspect of toxic masculinity. In fact, I was reading something about FDNY uh, recently, and they were trying, there was a cultural thing about trying to get rid of, I forget what they termed it. It was like um, frat house, some, something frat house was some sort of quote that someone had, had blown out. And I really struggle with this aspect of it, because again, I'm an. I'm a six foot five, eighteen stone. I'm stereotypical knuckle dragging, meathead looking kind of firefighter. But I think when we talk about this grit and when we talk about mental toughness, people get the wrong end of the stick sometimes because they think you're being, uh, you know, they think you're being a you know, male chauvinist. They think that, like toxic masculinity and all this sort of bullshit. And I worry that we're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater, like we're going to discourage people from embracing some of these truly necessary principles and qualities of, of the firefighting profession. Um, so I wanted you to take me into to what you think your definition is when we're talking about grit, when we're talking about mental toughness. How do you interpret that? And, and when we look at those principles that a fire officer is looking for in people? Well, grit is just, to me, the guy that doesn't stop working, right? He's the guy, first one on the rig, always dressed. Out of fire, he's always in the right place. He's tough. That's grit to me, you know. Uh, that's something that I see that, that jumps out in young kids coming on the job. You don't have to go to 100 fires to have grit. It's just the way you were raised. Uh, I'm a firm believer that yeah. this job is not for everybody. And that's the problem we're getting lost in is that people think that they can come on this job because it is the greatest Anyone job in the world. Anyone can be a firefighter, Mickey. Anyone yes. can join the job. No, they fucking can't. Yeah. No, <laughs> you know, I, don't, I don't think it's you for know, everybody. I really don't. That's where this is oh, stemming from with this, this this frat house type mentality where you want to, if, if that's what you call it. But uh, there's, you know, there's a few things behind that where fire duty is somewhat down, I guess, around the world more or less, where I think that's trending the opposite way. Now, at least in New York City, fire duty is up, which is a good thing, um, which boosts morale. And I think that it's going to be trending mm. upwards in the future within the country. I just, I believe that a little bit with lithium ion batteries and whatnot, but fires are trending up. But going back to yeah. your question is that that mental toughness, right? That comes from the ability to just to get on the rig. Don't complain, do your job. But the one thing that gets overlooked as far as the qualities I look for in a firefighter is character. If you have good character, that speaks volumes in the way you were raised. And if your father made you a man or your mother made you a woman, goes both ways, I'll make you a firefighter. That's all I have to know, that you can handle it, that this job is for you, and I'll make you the greatest firefighter in the world. That's my take on the officer role of this, of what I'm looking in, is again... Yeah, but so much of that is outside you, of our control, and that's what, yeah. that's what I think we're struggling with now, because I heard a great quote from a previous guest, and they said, we're struggling now because people are going from mama's house to the firehouse and they're not getting some of them. Like I had a couple of really shit jobs when I was a kid, you know, I was working on building sites, working in factories, stuff like that. I had someone stick their finger in myself, in my face, sorry, and tell, uh, and tell me I'm a dickhead, you know, tell me I'm, tell me I'm full of shit. Tell me what I'm doing isn't good enough. You know, my dad ran a building firm and, and, and I did construction for many years from probably the age of like 12. But that's fine, but it's not normal now. You know, you can get 18-year-old, 19-year-old people who've come through academia and haven't had that same level of character building, and there's absolutely no reason they can't come and apply 
for the services. And we're certainly struggling with recruitment in the UK. So we're taking these people on board. And again, that's fine, but they struggle. They really struggle with the way they're spoken to. They struggle with uh, authority. They struggle with command. You know, when, when we're in the, when we're at the watch table, when we're in the kitchen, it's a conversation. It can be a democracy. We can talk about things. You can share your ideas. We can discuss what happened at an incident. When we're on the incident ground, it's not a conversation anymore. I'm not asking you to do this. I'm telling you to do it because it's working within my safe system of work. This is part of my tactical plan. And it's not a negotiation. And that is sometimes where people struggle to change gears and be receptive to that form of instruction. I think a lot of it too is um, being grateful for the job. Like I worked my whole, this was my dream. This is all I ever want to do since I can remember. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes, you know, I still look down at my shoulder and I'm like, holy shit, I'm a New York City fireman. Like, I'm doing it for over 20 years. <laughs> I look down, I'm still a New York City fireman. You know, it's, it's, that's huge. Yeah. You know, I have two kids in my fire. I call them kids. You know, I mean, they're not kids. They're, they're adults. But there's two guys. One guy I taught in probing school and another kid that I just had the, the honor and the ability to work with and meet. One's from the Dominican Republic and one's from Puerto Rico. Born and raised. And they came here as adults. Came on the fire department. And they're two of the best firemen I've ever worked with and two of the most motivated, gritty, honest real character guys I want to work with forever. These are the guys. And it's because they're incredibly grateful to be there. They're never complaining. They have the mental toughness because, I mean, they grew up in, 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 in a different country, more or less, in the, not a third world country, but they didn't grow up like I grew up. These guys love it. And I always wonder yeah. what, what drew them to the fire service. And, you know, you ask them, they can't even really tell you. It just happened to appear for them. And those are the guys, those are the guys I want to work with. Those are the guys that I believe make a great company and ultimately in the end will make the great senior guys because they're grateful and they respect the job. No, I totally agree. Um, one thing that we have, though, is, uh, is like you say, people do careers now for five or ten years. Um, I'm, not, I'm not seeing as much of it, to be fair, in the fire service, but people tell me it's starting to develop itself. Whereas for me, like I say, I joined when I was, I was 18, something I've always wanted to do. Uh, I can't see myself ever not doing it. I do a lot of other stuff around it, but it's still at the core of what I want to do. Um, but for some people, that's that, that's not necessarily the case. The careers are quite transient for people now. But again, I think what you guys are great at in the America is the fact that you're much more patriotic, it appears certainly to us. You're very proud of your first responders. Now, I know some of that has unfortunately come from the tragedies that you've faced and people have a great deal of respect and support for your first responders. We don't have necessarily have as much as that. And again, this is not fair to all first responders because I think your police get a really rough deal. I think they're probably not loved and supported in the way that perhaps they should. But other than the factors of 9-11 and stuff like that, why do you think there's so much pride around um, the fire service in the, in the U.S.? I think a lot of it comes from just being part of the community, you know, Having that door open, my entire career I've worked in, in, in poor neighborhoods. In a poor neighborhood, when I say a poor neighborhood, it's just not, I mean, New York City is so diverse with the neighborhoods, but not a well-off neighborhood, right? Where that firehouse, that becomes the center focal point for a lot of young kids. That's where they go to fill up their bike tires, fill up the basketball with the pin, you know, they're, they're shooting hoops down the park, come back, you know, can you pump up the tires, you come up the ball, yeah, come on in. Next thing you know, you're hanging out and they're, you know, they're, 
they're eating the leftovers in the fridge. Like it starts at an early age and, you know, <laughs> there's a few kids yeah, that, yeah. that stand out throughout my career that I watched grow up. Some made it out of the ghetto. Some got part of it and became gang members. But for the most part, 80 to 90% of those kids that started coming by the firehouse, the parents would come by eventually if they had parents even, you know, and thank you and say, just thanks for keeping an eye on them. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for it. And I think that's where our community, at least in the poor neighborhoods come from is just taking care of everyone. Fires are what we do, hmm. but it's about the, everything else hmm. that matters. You know, even going back to some of the engine runs where, you know, the EMS runs you go on where, you know, you're like, Oh, not another one. You know, and you pull up and it's a woman and she's calling and she's difficulty breathing and this and that. And you're like, man, I was here last week for the same woman. Maybe she's just lonely. Maybe she just wants someone to talk to, you know? And I think that's where it's hard to not get frustrated and get angry and know that we truly are part of the community. And by treating everyone with respect, regardless of how much money they make or where they live in the project or the penthouse, that's where we get the love from. I think it's truly important. I I think that firefighters have a very unique position in the community. They're seen as that cultural compass, that kind of moral compass, um, you recognize within the community as a place of safety. And I think we need to always remember that. I always say to, to my new recruits, this, there was, this thing was here long before as it will be here long after. You know, you are just a custodian of it. You've got to leave it better than you found it. And when you put that shirt on, you're not just representing yourself. You're representing firefighters from all over the world. Because people, people don't see firefighters every day. You know, they might only meet you at the worst day of their life when you have to attend their home or you attend them at a, a road traffic collision or something like that. And you will be the representation of everything they see the fire service to be, the fire brigade to be. You are that representation of it. You stand there in the shoes of every man and woman that's, that's been in the job across the world. So I think we it's important that we continue to impress that upon people. And that's why I love things like Top Floor Tactics and, and the podcasts that are out there because it's the stories, you know, it's, it's, it, we learn through stories. That's how the Bible was written, you know, and I think if you don't know where you've been, then how you, how are you supposed to know where you're going? It's so easy to forget the people that have come before us. Um, you mentioned a little bit earlier, and we, you kind of, we skimmed over it. We were talking about profiles, core profiles and stuff like that. And you mentioned about lithium ion batteries. There's a lot. Um, going on in the UK around understanding this as a new risk, adapting procedures for it, um, not only just in vehicles, which is where a lot of people think of lithium-ion batteries, but having them within residential properties, in battery banks. And this is a hazard that's really kind of crept up on us and is now prevalent in so many areas of society that I think we're not really ready for in terms of uh, how we tactically approach these types of incidents. So give me a bit of understanding of, of where things are at uh, for you guys and girls in FDNY. How are you dealing with these risks at the minute? And uh, what what sort of, I suppose, what you think it means as a danger to firefighters? So yeah, lithium-ion batteries, this is a topic where it's not necessarily changing our tactics, but it is changing the game, looking at tactics in relation to how we have to react to these fires. I'm not a hazmat expert by any means, but I have been studying the effects of how this will change the way we size fires up. Uh, at one time, I said you couldn't size these fires up. I felt that it was something that was um, just in the moment you figure it out. But now we've been going through so many of these fires. 
I think we can start to size these fires up and understand where ultimately we yes. fit in and how we you have start to connecting some dots. There's some trends because you've yes. been to that many now. But like you say, we start to develop a body of experience. Yeah. Now there was one video from the UK someone had sent me, and I know London has a has a big problem. Um, a London firefighter reached out and he sent me this video, and it was the one where the windows have failed. It's the first floor of like a mm. private dwelling, and it's, it's pushing out the windows, right? It almost looks like a dragon. Everyone's seen it. It's all over social media and, and uh, YouTube and whatnot. Yeah, but yeah. that's something when he first sent it to me, I was like, what, do you have a dragon in the back there? Like, like hiding? Didn't really understand it. Fast forward to today, <laughs> you, you know on arrival, that's a lithium-ion battery. So um, how it's really affecting what we're doing is we can't really change our tactics. We have to just be more aware of the details within it. So, you know, that third guy on the line... You know, it's kind of you're sitting there like, oh, man, I want the nozzle. I want to put the fire out. And you're kind of just humping the line in, kind of bummed you have that position. But now your head has to be on a swivel looking around for any micro micro mobility device that happens to be in that hallway charging by that front door in the bedroom that could be thermally loaded, starting thermal runaway, mm. and could fail behind <clears throat> the advancing line. Those are the details we kind of have to hone yeah. in on. As quickly as they fail so quickly... That coordinated attack or that coordinated ventilation we spoke about earlier becomes very difficult to dial in now because the time factor, right? We're losing minutes that were one time to seconds as flashover. So that's a problem that we're dealing with as well. Mm -hmm. My biggest concern is for vehicles. Like if you're at a, a road traffic collision, you know, and like you say, when these batteries go through some form of damage, whether it's overcharging, whether it's an impact, whatever it just degradation that it goes into thermal runaway if you've got an individual stuck inside a vehicle and they're mechanically trapped and that thing goes into thermal runaway and you know it starts to off gas the rate at which they off glass and that 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 explosive cloud that's created for it i don't think we have an answer for that at the minute i mean we're talk we talk about having breathing apparatus on standby and a crew Ready. We've not put this into procedure yet, to my limited understanding, but it's certainly discussions that are ongoing at the minute to have that crew ready at the cordon to step in for the, for the rescue operators and take over the tools because it becomes an irresponsible atmosphere immediately and that, that thing can flash so quick um, and we wouldn't be able to get the person out. That's, that's what I think we wouldn't have an answer for. That's it. We just don't have an answer. And unfortunately... I mean, the public's going to ask what the answers are when they start when things start going wrong. Uh, we haven't really seen anything with the cars that I'm aware of where that situation. But when it does come, we don't have an answer. Unfortunately, with the fire service, we are reactive rather than proactive. And this is something where I know at least my job's trying to be proactive to a certain extent. But there is a gray area where I think they're spending too much time on educating the public on how to not start the fires. Mm -hmm rather than educating the firefighters on how to react to these fires. That's the, that's the gap we have to bridge, and I think that's yes. what we're losing sight of. Um, people are still going to use these devices. Our relationship with these companies uh, needs, to be, needs to be a lot better. You know, like we need Tesla need to be running sessions where firefighters, we can create this data and this content to be educating firefighters on what happens, how to switch these things off, you know, how to extinguish them, how to whatever. Um, like you say, there's a lot of public awareness going on, but the public, the public will be the victim of it, but they won't be the one being asked to deal with it. Right. And as far as dealing with it as firefighters, hmm. basic tactics, like I said, dialing in, 
the details, whereas how quickly we take that backup line, right, and we move that on the fire ground. We have the first line operating, start a second line. That second line is solely to back up that first line until that line is not needed and then reposition it to either the floor above or wherever that fire may be extending to. Now we have to start thinking about, well, what if there's a micro-mobility device in that burning apartment or that home that's thermally loaded, that's not directly in, affected by the fire, it didn't necessarily start the fire, but now it's running away. And that runaway is burning internally, and now it's failing. But now that line we've already committed to somewhere else in the building. So I think we kind of have to go back to basics of keeping that backup line stretched and charged and ready to go to work in case that scenario was to happen. Now, I did this lecture on lithium-ion batteries, and I travel on the country and do it. I did it uh, right in Pittsburgh. I went over that section. Two, three, four weeks later, I get an email from one of the students and with helmet camera footage of that exact thing happening. So it's real, and it's something that we have to understand. No way. That we can't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's great because it kind of now I can give that part of the class and with an example and kind of really hone in on guys and say, listen, this is real um, because it is. It's just a matter of time. Unfortunately, it's a matter of time before firemen start getting severely, severely injured or killed at these fires. And that's when the fire service will start talking about tactics. Mm, 100%. I, uh, I know we're conscious on time today, but I, was, um, rec- I recently got sent a book. Uh, we referenced earlier, actually, you know, Ordinary Heroes. And it reminded me that, and it's always one of the things, because a few things that happen across the world when you always remember where you were um, when it happened. And I can't believe it's 20, was it 23 years now? 20, 20, 24? 22. No, it's 23 years since 9-11. Is that right? 22, 23, yeah. And it still seems so so present in my mind. And I suppose it's because I've just re- read this book again recently. Um, how did that change... Because you're probably one of the few, probably not one of the few, because there'll be many, the service over there is just so huge. But there'll be so many people in the job now that weren't around when that happened. How much of that was a changing of the guard? Obviously, a great number of individuals were unfortunately lost during that incident. How have you seen the love for the first responder? How have you seen the culture of the organization change um, since things like 9-11, you know, the support and funding and the real, um, sort of the appreciation for the necessity of well-trained, well-funded, well-respected, supported first responders. You know, I truly feel for the most part, it's forgotten outside of the five boroughs, at least. Really? Yeah. You know, wow. And this comes from the lack of education. Uh, you know, our school system has done a disservice to really honing in and teaching children about that day, about the sacrifices made, not just with the fire department, across the board. I think that's done a disservice. Um, now, again, within New York City, it's very different. But outside the five boroughs, I think that's where we're at. Um, it breaks my heart. And, you know, it bothers me. It bothers me deeply when you see September 11th come across and you see uh, they're having whatever, a block party, a fish fry, this, that, whatever it may be. But people schedule events on September 11th. And that, it just rubs me the wrong way. Because for me, it's a day, right? And for many New Yorkers, it's just a day. However, it's every day in New York. If you're a New Yorker, it's every day you deal with this. For some, they've made it into a holiday, which is kind of odd. And they come to New York City to visit and they pay their respects, but they don't treat the city with the understanding that 
this is every day for us. We don't turn this off. We don't turn it off and on. It's not once. It's not Easter. It's 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 not Christmas, St. Patrick's Day. It's just a day, September 11th, because we live it year round. Um, it's but it's a day we pay our respects. So how has it changed as far as the fire service? Well, we have a before and after, I guess, right? So we have before September 11th and after September 11th. There's not too many guys that are still around from the before side. Um, I'm kind of in a gray area. I came on during that time. I was in the process of the academy and whatnot and got out to the field and got assigned to a firehouse that lost five firefighters. And I spent some time on the pile working down there. That must have been a fucking really difficult time to join the, the, the organization. Not that, again, you'd wish you'd have joined at a different time, but like it was in such a place of mourning for those, for those following years. Um, and like you say, you, you, sorry I interrupted you, but five people were lost at the house you went to. Yeah, and you know, to put it into words is you know, like you would. I walked in that day as you know, you bring your cakes, and it's everything you ever wanted was this job. I wanted to be a New York City fireman since I could remember, you know, since I was probably five, six years old, um, and have the moment to get there and then do that. And it wasn't a job that I fell in love with. It was a very different job for obvious reasons. You bring the cakes. Some of the guys are there looking at you like, "What are you doing here?" Wouldn't even look at you. And then, but majority of them, believe it or not, they embraced it. They loved it. They had tears in their eyes saying, thank you for coming. We thought no one would ever come again. So it was kind of a, a weird thing. But that said, I didn't really truly learn the foundation of the firehouse life and what the right thing to do in the sense of the firehouse because I was learning about a different side. Uncharted waters about that job. Yeah. You know, it was a job that was never even experienced before. And not a job that you can be taught or learned. It's just, just being in that moment of time, if that makes sense. You know, and then... Fast forwarding 20 plus years later, I truly believe that collectively we rebuilt the best fire department in the world. And that comes from the blood, sweat, and tears that that we were endured during that time, but also taking that next generation and not forgetting about the memorials every firehouse has, showing them, respecting them, taking that day of September 11th as a day of mourning, a day of celebration for the lives and members, but a day to say, put that uniform on and say, I'm a New York City fireman. And I love this job. I love this country. And that's something that we can never lose sight of. Now, COVID hits. The vaccine mandate with the city of New York. I felt that everything we ever worked for in these past 20 years, the job we were built was destroyed very, very quickly. And that's what breaks my heart is that mm. the moments during COVID and just how our politicians failed us across the board. Um, it was kind of just like that's where I feel truly we're just a number yeah that's a that's a tough reality of it sometimes we feel that sometimes in the uk as well um i want to be super respectful of your time but i'd be remiss if we didn't mention you are you're launching your own podcast as well something's coming up talk to us a little bit around because i think this makes so much fucking sense you know i've, I've read a bunch of your posts i've heard you speak on other podcasts before um, I know it's a massive heavy lift to be doing something like this yourself, but give us an understanding of um, the podcast that you're starting, you know, what's it going to be called, give people, I suppose, the elevator pitch of what's going to be involved in it. Because every time I read one of your posts, I think to myself, that post's a fucking podcast in itself. Like we could talk about that thing for 40 minutes. And I, and I suppose it's just because the way I've been conditioned, because I love the the long form content of conversation. Um, but talk to me a little bit around how people can find out more about this, what it's going to be about. Yeah, so that's just it. So 
written word is a beautiful thing and i love writing that's my passion outside firefighting i just loved i just love written word and there's something so magical about that but i feel we're very limited with written word especially on instagram it's just a short mm-hmm. glimpse of what's in my mind right so the podcast is something i've talked about for probably about a year and a half two years now i just never had the courage to come out and just do it um but i've teamed up with national fire radio uh, which is a platform here in the states uh they're going to edit it they're going to push it for me um i just have to hit record more or less so i'm so honored and blessed to have that opportunity to do that with them uh it's going to be called a view from the top floor with mickey farrell and we're just going to dive in on hot button issues more or less it's not going to be that typical fire podcast where it's an interview such as this it's more about tactics it's about pushing the limits um i'm not going to be the host that's going to prove someone's theory right i'm going to try to be the host that's going to push the limits and maybe prove someone wrong in the sense like let's learn from these these situations let's learn from these tactics not that anyone's right or wrong but let's collectively talk about things and let's push it forward together and Mm -hmm. learn um there's a couple shows within the show so uh the tft uh field note which is pretty much just my pet peeves about the fire ground little tidbits here and there we're going to have the floor above which is a question and answer you submit your questions i'll try to get you the answer if i don't have it um and then the 10 things i wish i could tell myself is a proby right so i have message to the proby and i started with one I built it to 10. Now I think I'm on like 17, 18, 20 possibly. But these are posts within my social media account and Instagram that I get a lot of feedback, a lot of traction with. And um, a lot of people have reached reached out and said, where can I get these collectively all together? It's going to be on the podcast. Yes. It's going to be one of the <laughs> podcasts where we just build. Wait, and- it needs to be a book as well. Yeah, possibly one day. But that's on the list. That was the main goal was, <laughs> yeah, on the list. That's the goal behind it. I mean, I'm not... It, the thing was, I kept putting it off, putting it off, putting it off because I couldn't really dial in how I wanted to do it. And I just realized I just have to hit record and just start talking because I have so much in my in my head that I want to express and get out there. And I kind of want to guide the next generation into the right direction of this job because I feel like we're getting lost. And there's only so much you can do in written words. So connecting like this, um, either through the visual or just the audio, but at least that intimate connection mm-hmm. is something that I think is going to uh, help the fire service. That's the number one goal is to help. I always think don't get worried about the visual for me. I know YouTube is a fucking enormous platform and there's money in it and all that sort of stuff, but the podcast statistics will tell you that the biggest the biggest listens are always on audio. The biggest engagement is always through audio because we're everybody's so busy. We're driving, yeah. we're training, and we're walking the dog, we're doing whatever else we're doing. People want the audio and they want to listen to it again and again and again. And, and I think those field notes and things like that, and the recruits aspect, is something people will just listen to again and again and again. And I know the feeling, because again, I, I think there's thousands of firefighters in the UK that'd be way better at um, doing the podcast than I would. But so many people can't get over themselves. I, I speak to so many incredible people, I'm like, again, yourself, like, Mickey, you should have a fucking podcast. It would be so interesting, so fascinating, whether they're short bits, long bits, tactical aspects. But so many people, especially as you get older, you're so used to being the proficient expert in your field that to become a beginner again in something is, is very humbling. You have humility down as one of the great characteristics. And it's true. You've got to remain that eternal student. You've got to be willing to put yourself out there. And don't let perfect be the enemy of good or great. Do you know what I mean? Something that will go out there will be so great for someone, so essential for someone's development. It won't be perfect. It won't be exactly 
as you would want it to be. It won't sound the right way and uh, and all that sort of stuff. But I think it's going to be super, super valuable. We will. Um, you you launch in the, the intro by the time we release this, which will be in, in a fair few weeks from now, it will already be out. So how often are you expecting this? Is it going to be a weekly thing? Is it going to be a daily thing? And I suppose I'll, I'll, guess I'll steal some links off you after this to be able to tie through it. Or will they be able to get the links from the website? Because we're going to put that in the notes as well. Uh, yeah, they'll be on the website, I'm sure. I can give you the links you need as well. Um, yeah, so I'm, mm-hmm. it's a slow go. I mean, we, we have a few episodes recorded already. And like you said, like this will be already out once we're up and running. But um, it took me about 40 takes to get two minutes down. And then like you just said, don't let, I love what you said, <laughs> don't let perfection. I, I forget how you said it, but um, yeah. I had to get over that. Don't let perfect be the enemy of yes. good. Like, yeah. Because it, it is. And the problem is when you listen back to it yourself, you go, oh, shut the fuck up, Pete. You're waffling. You're talking bollocks. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You're not. It, yeah. It's just that you've listened to it too many times. And you're like, ah, God. And we even said it here. You know, people won't know. We edit this, obviously. And there's a couple of texts where you're like, dude, shall I, shall I go through that again? Do you want me to cover that again? I'm like, Mickey, it's great. It's fantastic. Don't worry about it. And that's not because I'm trying to rush through anything. I'm like, it sounded great. I was listening intently. But it is. It's this self, self-conscious self thing, isn't it? Because we want to do a great job. And that is a guilt, uh, but also a great quality as well. It's like you want to do a great job. Yeah. And, I, you know, with the with the written word... You know, the spell check, you go back and I write something, I'll sit on it for a month, I'll come back and I'll rewrite it and say, oh, thank God I didn't put that out there. I hate the way it sounds. With this, it's almost like boom, 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 <laughs> just go, you know? Um, but that's the difference is yeah, I have yeah. realized that this is not written word, it's spoken word. And with spoken word, it's it's raw emotion. And and that's where that I think that intimacy will, yeah, will, will be a benefit for the fire service. It'd be so powerful, mate. So much more powerful because the written word is fantastic. You know, they say, you know, the written word, it is very powerful. You can move people with it. But with your voice, there's so much intonation, there's passion, there's range, there's, it's an instrument in itself, you know? And, and I think it'll be an essential resource. Look, brother, I really, really enjoyed that. We've been talking for like an hour and a half straight. And I know, you know, we've had conversations privately. You've taken time away from your family and stuff to be with us at the minute. And I really do appreciate that. I want to send my love to, to your family and your loved ones at the minute. Um, coming into the new year, I hope everyone's safe. I hope everyone's all right. And uh, I really would love to, to you know, have a conversation again in maybe three or four months' time, come back on some tactics and some lessons learned and, and kind of whistle through some of the aspects that you found really useful since starting the podcast. Yeah, I love that. Thanks so much for the kind of words, Peter. Uh, it means a lot, and uh, I'm very honored to be on a, on your platform, especially in the UK. I mean, that's something new to me. I spent some time in the UK, and I loved my time when I was there. So to have the opportunity to meet you and talk with you has been great. So thank you. The Firefighters Podcast was created to recognize, acknowledge, inspire, and hopefully even motivate these incredible individuals who have chosen to be part of the first responder community. Our driving purpose is to create a legacy resource for the current and future generations of firefighters and first responders. We get some incredible feedback from listeners and guests. And as the podcast grows, our desire to create longevity and sustainability means that we are asking for the support of our listeners. If you want to support the podcast, if you want to get discounts to our merchandise, hoodies, clothing, coins, patches, tallies, and also access to all of the incredible documents get shared with us from our podcast guests and sector leaders, then please head over to our Patreon page. And for just £3 a month, you can support the future of the podcast please finally hit that follow subscribe or rate button on the platform you're listening and wherever you're on the world please support your emergency services responders and thank you for listening